0: I think that when we taste authenticity the same as when we meet somebody, a person, because all of these products are like living things, you know when someone's being true. You know when someone is authentic. You get that. That is a vibration that you give off. And so do these products. Hi everyone. I'm Liz Kasky. As a travel curator, cook, wine aficionado, and design lover here in South America. I've always been fascinated by the stories of how creatives pursue their dreams. What's the energy behind a great chef and restaurant? How is that tasty cheese made? Why does this wine speak to me? What was the inspiration for that hotel? Or simply appreciating the artistry of an old world weaving with contemporary design. I'm constantly searching for local flavors and am passionate about sharing them. Welcome to In Search of Flavor, a podcast that explores the experiences, ideas, and stories behind the fascinating trailblazers in the region and the beautiful projects they've birthed. So pour yourself a glass of wine, dial into your wanderlust, and get ready to be inspired. What is terroir exactly? Hi, guys, welcome to season two of the In Search of Flavor podcast. Before we dive into some of the awesome guest interviews we have queued, I want to dig into a theme that we come back to time and time again on the podcast, and that is terroir. We need to have a little discussion around it and how it intersects with craftsmanship and how this all ties together to create a lot of beauty across the explorations of wine and food and even design and hospitality that we get into on this podcast. So we can divide our explorations into two camps, terroir being the expression of a place and an identity through an agricultural product that usually happens to be fermented. So I'm talking about wine, spirits, cheese, chocolate. And even though we don't touch on it in this podcast because I don't smoke, cigars fall into this category. Then we have Craftsmanship, which goes into how the product is made, which also can tie into terroir products, obviously, that are edible, but also applies to things we don't eat that have a keen sense of origin in place. So this could be a beautiful piece of art, a hotel, a restaurant, and a chef, you know, that's created that, or a designer. For this episode today, my focus is going to be terroirs related to agricultural products because this is something I really Want to expand on, particularly because you know I do live in Napa now, and wine is the thing here, and it's something that we we talk, we talk a lot about in general. So terroir is a term that has been thrown around a lot more than in the past in wine media and marketing, and I really feel that it cannot be reduced to a one size fits all definition. It's the same as if you tried to describe, I don't know, uh, beauty in one sentence. Is that really even possible? I don't think it is. In wine, there's, there's usually some notion that terroir has to be exclusively about the vineyard and the climate. And while that is totally part of the equation, I also find it can be reductive. So there's a lot more happening than that. So how do the organic and inorganic forces combine with the human hand to yield this product that has an ability to express a place and beauty? Because these appreciation of finer things really are, it's an appreciation of beauty ultimately. So for me, one of the tenets of terroir is the value of the artisanality, if you will, precedes the value of equality. So that smallness in the sense, small batch, the, the craftsmanship that, that you're really looking for something that's handmade comes through. And so the finest wines, and this can also be applied, as we said, to coffee, cheese, chocolate, they always offer clarity, distinctiveness, balance, deliciousness, Complexity, I would say modesty too, to some degree, persistence, and sometimes even a little bit of paradox in your mouth, which is fun. And they are almost always tied to a small producer and their families, and the origins can be traced. So anytime you start to see terroir as a, you know, air quotes, commercial good, you can be assured that it's probably anything but. Terroir, for me, is this glimpse through your palate of a place that we taste and gives us a contact, if you will, with the spirit of that place that comes through nature and the people that make it. And it's inseparable. So that's why when people only focus on the vineyard, I have a problem because I really think, well, that vineyard's tied to a family and a person and all the decisions that humans make to create that product. I also think that since terroir wines are so anchored in families and cultured, you know, we're really reminded of our own roots and humanity when we taste them. So, thinking of people and this is very personal of who made these products and whose work brought about these products, you know, to me suddenly the dedication to do that day to day, season to season you know, dealing with what mother nature can give you in a given year, especially like 2020, it's astonishing to me. And so that dedication to the alchemy and transformation of a tangible yet very simple agriculture product into an object of beauty, I find is also a very important component that we must discuss about terroir wines because it's part of what makes them appreciable. I also want to surmise when we talk about terroir in this very fun philosophical space we're in right now, that we all bring our life experience to the table. So this is not an objective experience. It's completely subjective when we taste. So obviously our responses are going to be different, but regardless of whatever they may be, when we taste authenticity, we know it. And it doesn't require to be academic or be a familiar, or have your degree as a winemaker. It's experience over time and tasting and having comparables to gauge again, that you can hone that. But I think that when we taste authenticity, the same as when we meet somebody a person because all of these products are like living things you know when someone's being true you know when someone is authentic you get that that is a vibration that you give off and so do these products and so and th- i also feel when we taste authenticity for me at least it helps me almost ground or locate myself in my life. And so what I mean, not to get too far out there. When we experience that kind of beauty and it's a language ultimately, on a deep level, it feels like inspiration and that de- deliciousness is like and you listen obviously to what your your your, you know, your senses are interpreting, you get it. And so if it it it's not something that we necessarily can you know, taste is something we can't explain with words. You really don't need an academic base. It's it, This is visceral. And terroir is visceral. So you can be at the beginning of your wine journey, you know, just really discovering it. You could have just discovered your first bean-to-bar or chocolate or, you know, really getting into craft coffee. And you could also be somebody that has an extensive collection of wines. You could be somebody that makes their own wines. You could be, you can be a lot of things in life. But my point is that we all experience authenticity in a very visceral, sensual way. And so just, you know, sort of bring this all together before we segue into the meat of this episode, if you will. In our hustle culture, you know, we, I find we rush our senses so much. We try to always move on to the next thing. And there's a real tendency, particularly wine and any, anything that once again is, is using like our senses that we, Tend to outsource that knowledge to other people instead of learning to actually use our faculties and trust our intuition because I do think there's a lot of intuition and what I call, said listening when you are interpreting these these subtle languages, if you if you will, because they all like art are languages, and you know we don't need to depend on experts who tell us what we know and what we're perceiving already. So I think. You know the 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 way you know people always are asking me. Well, how do you develop your palate? And sure, there's lots of practical tricks to do that. You can smell fruit. You can you know taste a lot of comparables. You, I don't know. You can there, there there are lots of hacks that you can do that. But I think the most important one in the end is the ability when you are tasting is to come to the table or you know the tasting room with a very open mind and the willingness to listen and ask what does this wine want to tell me and I, and it sounds a little crazy, but I do do this in tastings and, and just like, is this like a bailarina and are we like a little melody in my mouth or is, is this like a, you know, once again, going back to people, is this like somebody that's really noisy or pushy or, you know, I don't want to hang out around this person. And I think as you, you know, taste through wines, you start seeing these personalities shine through. And so to sum up really, as we are going to explore with all of our our guests over the next season, this what's behind terroir. I I, I do believe that the path to cultivating how we appreciate it is through listening uh, and trusting our own our own taste. And so, to muse a little bit for the rest of this episode, I want to do uh, a segue in, with a couple of our guests that we had from season one that I feel really dug into this topic in a, a great way and opened up the, the dialogue that we can have. And, you know, I want this as I, I hope this is something that you you guys at home, you know, will chew on and maybe at a dinner party now that we can get together and see each other and, you know, talk, converse about this or the next time you open a bottle of wine, take a moment to to come to it a little differently. Pause. And so the first person we're going to, we have four, four of our guests that we met with last season, and you're going to meet Santiago Javal of Maturvini, which is a winery in Mendoza who has really focused on terroir and Malbec. He's going to be sharing a segment from his episode about that. Our friend Mark Garretts, who makes Ovalo chocolate in Santiago, about how this can translate also to cacao in a very precise and pure way. We also have Jake Standifer, who, who roasts artisan single-origin coffees in Chile, too, who also touches on how this, this thread is pulled through the coffee industry and this this movement of bean-to-cup a little bit. And then finally, Juliana Frucci, who's a leading mycologist, a mushroom expert that is in Chile, I also wanted to pull in her a a very important few minutes that she touches on about how fungi are really what bring it all together, not only in our ecosystems, but I think that we probably haven't even done ma- that many studies about the, how terroir is related to fungi, but I would be willing to bet not only in culinary products, but, you know, if you get into the microorganisms that are present in the soil, in the the fermentation tanks, in the barrels, you know, in the cork as how they all interact, I'm sure that it is intrinsically related to ter- how terroir is is transmitted. Ultimately, I hope you guys enjoy this mashup of best hits on terroir from season one.
1: We landed in Mendoza and started driving around and looking at vineyards. And this was March of 1999. And we kind of crashed into Old Vine Malbec. We just were driving around like Consulta and looking for more land to plant. And we just happened to drive by a a very old vineyard, unkempt, untidy. It was a mess. And uh, we uh, looked at it and laughed at it. And then Roberto, who was with me, Roberto Cipresso, he came back the following day and tasted the fruit. And uh, that's when all our plans changed because the quality of that fruit was so awesome and so intense and so unique. So it, it wasn't. A fruit that you would say this is a typical Malbec. This was fruit that was more following its own path. And we said, okay, this is a Malbec that speaks of its land. And we bought the vineyard and we harvested the fruit uh, two days later. And uh, uh, we made a two- 1999 Finca Altamira. And uh, just tasting the wines fresh out of fermentation tanks. Just uh, The wine was just in barrel when we went to Vinitali that same year with samples. And, and we, we had people, uh, winemakers and journalists taste this. And they said, this is different. And we agreed this is different. We're... And then we th- thought, okay, there's one vineyard at least in Mendoza that can transmit the signature of the land, the character, the personality of the land. It can't be a, a, a happenstance. It ha- there has to be another one, there or many other ones, and that's when we started looking for the the other single vineyards, and we found Finca Mirador, and then we found Finca Bella Vista, and then we had a trio of single vineyard Malbecs. And even then, I had to uh, several discussions within the winery uh, that uh, uh, because some of my partners were not convinced that showcasing three wines at the same price point at the same quality level and but different wines was a good strategy and i said look at burgundy look at uh, look at uh, all the wines throughout the world once you find a terroir this potent you have to make the wine there's there's no choice once you find a vineyard like this you have to make a wine from it and uh, that's how the concept was we started going around and tasting people on these wines the concept was not new. It, it was new to Argentina, but not new to the wine world. So in the U.S., it was fantastically well-received. And it was, these wines were immediately very uh, popular. Not popular. They were expensive wines, but they, were, they garnered a, a following.
0: So when, we're ta- when you were talking about terroir, because, I mean, I feel that that's one of what always in your wines is so clear. They're terroir wines. Maybe we can dive into this because not everybody, I feel that a lot of people don't understand, like, what is a terroir wine? How do you know when a wine is speaking to you? And you, if you're a wine whisperer in the sense of, like, how do you know when you're standing on this piece of land and you know it has something different? Like, what does that look like? Are you, you know, tasting the fruit and imagining, extrapolating, what is this wine going to, what is its personality? How is this going to emerge? Like, I mean, because that's some, that's a talent that not everybody perhaps has that experience nor vision to sort of take that dream and turn it into this final product that's able to transmit its a piece of art, basically.
1: I would say it takes some experience. And uh, I was lucky, and we were lucky to, to have Roberto with us. It helps a lot if you're doing it in March, which is our harvest, and then you can taste the grapes. And tasting the grapes, you get a lot of information, a lot, a lot of information. Initially, at that point, I was not the one to make the call because – that was my uh, i had been tasting grapes since 95 when we started uh, thinking about this and we were uh, did a couple of trips in wine country uh, with the partners but uh, roberto was who, the one who made the call and as the years went by i acquired that ability it it is experience it is passion and it's a profound interest in the land that uh, allows you to build uh, this Feeling for for the special places that are that are here and there, and the, this even the concept of terroir is still, I would say, not entirely accepted by everybody. A few years ago, uh, an, a very famous winemaker said, uh, "There's no such thing as minerality in a wine in the sense that the vine does not have the ability to take these." Substances from the soil, and uh, the, to that I respond. Uh, uh, there was a very famous case in the U.S. Supreme Court back uh, in the '60s, I think, and uh, it was. Uh, this sounds that has it's, it's irrelevant, but it's, the case was around pornography, and the the whole case of, of the defendants was first uh, the free speech. They were arguing it was free speech and then the state was trying to make the case for obscenity. And one of the uh, the Supreme Court judges said, I cannot define obscenity, but I recognize it when I see it. And that's the way I think everybody should approach terroir is you you don't need to define it. You taste it in a wine and there are wines that are clearly made in one specific place. There, There are wines that are clearly could not have been made anywhere. At the same time, there are wines that you can say, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon that could have been made anywhere, but there are some wines that are uniquely from someplace. And I think it was uh, Matt Kramer, uh, an American journalist, who coined the the word somewhereness. An attribute of the wine is somewhereness, a wine that has to have been made somewhere, not anywhere, somewhere. And I think that's the first step into defining terroir. This is a wine from a place. I don't recognize the place. I don't pinpoint the place, but I do recognize as a consumer that this is one place and one place only.
0: And do you think the average consumer, when they open a bottle of wine, I mean, independent if it's your wine now, Matarvini or, you know, Atta do you think they're able to pick up those clues? Because, I mean, there's a deliciousness in fine wine that's real, but... There's also, I feel like, an educational component to that appreciation of terroir, just like the way you would study opera or classical music or anything
1: like that. Well, you know, one of the things I found uh, uh, repeatedly, and it's one of the things we do in Martavini, we visit or sits down and we give him uh, five wine glasses with five Malbecs from different places. And if that consumer were tasting only one of those wines – Maybe he would not identify it as those terroir components, but they clearly jump out of the glass when you compare one with the other. What the average consumer may not have is the memories of other wines to compare this wine to he doesn't have the database, but he does have the palate or the natural palate is the human natural palate is able to distinguish these wines from each other. It's the same variety. They were made in the same fashion. They were aged in the same barrels for the same length of time. And these are different wines. And clearly, if you have to use your memory, you may not recognize that. But once you have one next to the other or five next to one another, then you do recognize the difference in the wines. And it clearly jumps out of the glass that this difference is driven by location.
2: A few days, and I'll go out and do some adventure to find some else. I already kind of figured out. I already finished the business part of it, so you know, do some adventure and go visit a new part of Peru that I had been to before. I then I contacted them, and they said, "Sure, come on over." And I took a bus overnight, thirteen-hour bus over the Andes. I got into Pangoa, and I just fell in love. Mm. I absolutely fell in love with the place, with the people, with the community, with the co-op I'd worked in. In nonprofits for you know a couple of decades now in Latin America, and yeah, you I know, got a pretty good sense of smell for when things are on the upright or not. You know, because where money is, you know, I so said there's a lot of investment of these of these foreign investments, and not everything that's called an NGO or called a cooperative is necessarily benevolent. So when, when there's money involved, there's a lot of temptation. But when I when I met the people from the co-op, when I met the farmers, when I tasted their beans, and it was in with uh, for three days. I just knew that this is the place I want to work with. This is the place where I want to source my beans. These are the farmers that I want to work with. This is the community that I want to put an effort into try to make a positive impact in that community. You know, as life would have it, the the purchase that I made in Tarapoto fell through. They didn't end up sending the beans even. But, you know, I, I got a lucky star, I think, and I already had a plan B, fortunately, and uh, made arrangements with Pangoa, and I got the first shipment of beans, and that was six years ago that I've been working exclusively with beans from Pangoa. That amazing quality cacao, it's a native mm-hmm. cacao that they had extracted from their from their jungle, and then they have then included it into their into their agriculture. It's all agroforest, shade-grown and tremendous flavor actually last year 2019 they were a finalist in the 50 best cacao beans in the world so very fortunate to work with the with great cacao and great people
0: and can you talk a little bit when you're you were visiting all of these different co-ops all around peru when you taste the beans they've been fermented and dried and you're tasting them at that point do you do like a roasting experiment can you explain like how how do you assess the raw material, the same way a winemaker would go and taste grapes, and you can get some idea where this could go based on the raw material. Is that the same with palette yes, with chocolate? You
2: know, it's a palette that you that, that you develop over time. Definitely it's honed in now, and I can I can taste a bean and I could definitely say yes or no, maybe not be able to determine what the chocolate's gonna taste like, but I definitely know whether I want to work with it or not. And you can tell if the beans have been properly fermented, properly dried. That's something you can you can taste and in pangoa now we do do sample roasts before selecting the beans but mostly it's knowing their terroirs so well knowing their beans so well i travel up there for the harvest and then i go through the selection of beans that have been fermented and dried to our protocol and then i literally spend an afternoon maybe two days doing a cut test uh, going through different sacks Putting a, a sampler into it, taking a few beans out, cutting them, tasting them, and pretty much immediately I can say this bag yes, this bag no, this bag yes, and then I I can determine how many tons of beans I need that year, how many sacks that I need to select. We write overload on them, and then they prepare them in in Ute sacks and send them down to us here in in Santiago.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I find this part is so interesting because a lot of people don't immediately associate that cacao is a fruit. Hmm. And then the process. And and one of the reasons I really wanted to bring you on the show is to talk about this because guys, just so you know, Oberlo, the first time I tried Oberlo with Mark, this is several years ago now, it was really when I got it, the fruitiness it's expressed through this chocolate. And so that's why I want to spend time today talking a little bit about like why it's so important to honor the raw material and the terroir, if we can use that term, and how you do that at every step of the process, because, you know, you can wreck a chocolate, <laughs> I'm sure, at certain well, points of the way, even if you have a good material.
2: I think it's it's more, I look at it differently. We want to honor the chocolate. We want to honor their cacao. I think we're very fortunate to to work with, you know, not only a high quality bean that's ethically grown, but I do really, I believe, I feel that the bean has an energy to it. It has a vitality to it. Maybe that's a better term. It's so fresh in the sense that it's so close to origin. And when we get it, it still has that vitality, that the energy of the, of the Amazon, the energy of the community, the, the intention that they put into their cacao, they really have a lot of pride in it. And I do believe that that comes through the bean. And our job is just to kind of understand it, get in tune with it, and honor it. And that the chocolate bar at the end is a reflection of that, that vitality, that energy that the cacao has.
0: So how, when you got this started, how did you decide whose beans to buy? And then once you have cleared the hurdle of customs here, which is not minor, you have this wonderful, you know, primary ingredient in your hand. Like, how do you know how to roast it? I mean walk walk me a little bit through the whole process one of like you know you talk about seed to cup. How do you make those buying decisions because just like I guess like chocolate or wine it all depends on the grower, right? Mm-hmm. And then once you have this like what you know how do you how do you approach it from like a roasting standpoint? Like how do you assess your material and what do you do with it?
3: Yeah. The question about how do we choose our green? We get up to maybe about a hundred samples a year of different coffees that we could choose from. And what we're looking for are four very basic, although very difficult to achieve criteria. This is the kind of cup that we're looking for. And those criteria are first, it has to be sweet. It's a misnomer to think that coffee is bitter. It has some bitterness to it, obviously, but when it's really, really bitter, which coffee is mostly known for, for us, it's usually because something's gone wrong in the process. And so we tend to, to stay away from bitterness, and that bitterness is overcome when you find a high-quality bean that's rich with sugars, rich with carbohydrates. It's just just this sweet and elegant cup of coffee. And I'm not talking about, like, Snickers bar sweetness. You know, I'm not talking about refined sugar sweet. I'm talking about an elegant very beautiful sweetness. So that's our number one criteria. If the coffee doesn't have sweetness, it's really easy to detect the non-sweet coffees and you just discard them. So sweetness is, is first on the list. The next one is personality. You know, you think about anything that you've had that is of high quality. If it's a cup of wine, if it's this wonderfully crafted plate from a master chef, or even if it's a music concert that you go to, You can recognize it for what it is. It's coffee, it's beer, it's food, it's music. But when it's very good quality, it stands out and it almost transcends itself. Yeah, it's wine, but it's something so much more than wine. And and we feel that that's what we're looking for in coffee is that transcendent cup that it's coffee. But there's something really unique about this cup. There's something unique about this bean. And and we could talk about Tira and and the uniqueness of how it's processed and all that stuff. But, you know, when we're cupping coffees, trying to select our lineup, we want that coffee to stand out. And that doesn't mean that it's got to be exotic, but certainly it has personality. It's complex. There's more going on than just your typical notes of coffee. So sweetness, personality, clarity. For us, is our third criterion very important? I think one of the reasons why coffee is so over roasted is to hide those defects that end up in the cup. When you have a coffee that's not cultivated correctly, it's not harvested at the right time, it's not processed well, it's not roasted well. Those defects show up in the cup, and then it muddies that personality that we're looking for. and And so, if you have a defect full coffee then you're not going to get sweetness. You're not going to get to recognize and appreciate that personality. So it's got to be a clean cup. And then the final one is balance. For me, it kind of goes against a little bit, the trend in specialty coffee. The trend is the more acidic the coffee, the more prized the bean. And, And I don't think that that's true. I think a coffee could be really exotic, but if that acidity doesn't make sense with everything else that's going on in the cup, then... For us, that's not the kind of coffee we want to have on our lineup, but we've had very exotic coffees on our lineup, but there's this just beautiful synergy symbiosis that's going on in the cup where all that complexity and sweetness and clarity comes together and it it makes sense. So those are our criteria. And we look for coffees that are really different. You know, some people like it really floral. Some people like it really fruity. Others like it chocolate and caramel and so we offer beans based on, okay, this coffee is great, but it tastes a lot like, you know, this Colombian tastes a lot like this Guatemalan. So, you know, let's look for another Guatemalan. You know, we already got that flavor profile. So let's look for something with a personality that's going to stand out against that. So those are our four criteria. How we choose to roast is another process in, it, in itself. We, we have the philosophy that there's nothing sacred in coffee, except the bean itself. So this guy has this way of roasting and he's going to swear by it. And this guy has his way of extracting the bean or this barista. She has her way of going about pulling the shot or whatever. And you're going to hear a thousand different methods from a thousand different coffee professionals and people get locked in whatever it is that they were taught. But for us, we want to question those norms, question the things that we were taught and just really get down to what is sacred about the coffee bean itself. So what we try to do is we roast it a bunch of different ways and we cup it. We're always constantly analyzing and cupping our coffees and taking notes and cross-referencing and all that. to just what is bringing out the beauty of that unique personality? What roast profile is creating that sweetness and that balance, that harmony, so that you try this cup, either in espresso or in cappuccino or, or in a filtered hand brew? Are we roasting in a way where we're really revealing the depth and the beauty of that cup? So my first coffee professor, a guy by the name Casey O'Keefe, who's in Lima, Peru, he gave me this really beautiful analogy that stuck with me for over 10 years. And he said that if we take the analogy of photography, the farmer is the artist. He's the true artist. She's the true artist. They're the photographer on the field taking the snapshot when when they harvest that bean. And when they harvest that bean, they hand it to the roaster, and the roaster is kind of like the dark room where we reveal that shot that he or she took. And then the coffee shop is the gallery where that photo is put in a, a nice and beautiful frame, and it's given this, this light that accentuates whatever it was that the farmer wanted to say through, through his snapshot. And so what we try to do is take great care and honor that work that's come before us to just reveal what we think that snapshot really is, you know, and after roasting for as long as we've been roasting, which I'm not saying is this insane amount of time, but we've, we've come to like narrow that time and narrow that window so we can get it right a lot sooner and not dishonor the the art of the, the, the farmer. But yeah, that's how we, we approach roasting that the coffee is being is the only sacred thing and we want to honor it and roast it in such a way where it, really bring, draws that personality and balance out.
0: And you you have said before and in, in other interviews and documentaries that the basis of all our ecosystems, essentially, are these living organisms. So, I mean, can you explain to us a little bit how to start approaching this as its own category? Because, you know, you really have, they can heal us, we can eat them, they can kill us, <laughs> they can change our consciousness because there's, you know, a lot of what's interesting coming out now. I personally read Michael Pollan's book, but about how they're this conduit to nature's, they give us this, this link to a a different consciousness. So, I mean, I want to get into not just the culinary part that we always, you know, focus on. I want to go a little deeper and what this means for, for us as, as humans and how we can start relating differently to this kingdom?
4: It's funny because we tend to... Tag on to the fungi this capacity to, um, for example, kill us, you know, the poisonous, or to alter our consciousness. But really, these are properties shared across kingdoms. So, in plants, we know, you know, from mescaline in Peyote and San Pedro to THC. And there's so many plants that are conscious shifting. And there are so many plants that are toxic as well. I mean, there's the case of the young man in, you know, in into the wild who confused two plants when he's in Alaska on a bus and he died. Right. And in animals too, you know, there, you know, there are frogs that produce chemicals that are used in rituals. And, and there are so many animals that can be poisonous, but we still tend to endorse that, you know, the, and with the mystery into the, into the fungi. But it's important to say that what's happening there is that we know more about plants and animals. But these are not properties unique to the fungi, although fungi have many unique properties. And among those unique properties are the ability, really, to recycle. Fungi are the organisms, along with bacteria, that recycle almost everything. And without them, the planet would be a rubbish tip. I mean, nothing would, no energy would transform without fungi. So we know that energy is not lost, it's transformed. And it's the fungi that do that, not the plants or the animals. But these other properties are more common.
0: Is this at the forefront of of conservation right now? Because I want to get into a little bit how this relates to Chile and the forest here, because I think, you know, a lot of your work has been here locally and I want to take people into that. But it's so important because if that's the base, what you're saying of all of our ecosystems, I don't feel like it's a dialogue that we're having all the time as a central awareness in how we need to be thinking about our planet and in, in conservation. Why is that?
4: Right. I mean, so basically this property of recycling is through rotting, Decomposition is through rot and rot has been associated with death forever. And death has been associated as an end. So we're in a a society where fungi are considered organisms that are dark. They've been associated to paganism. You know, they grow in dark places. They have funny smells. They have phallic shapes. They rot things. They decompose things. They take things to Death so and we've we've been very far away from the importance of death as a beginning the process mm. of decomposing rebirth and yeah to decompose is really to leave the ability to compose to recompose and that's the part that's been missing when it comes to rotting and then when it comes to fungi as organisms that are the interconnectors of organisms so these you know there are so many I mean millions of fungi that connect animals to animals, animals to plants, you know, plants to plants, plants to bacteria, and they are almost always invisible. So between the fact that they're, you know, they're, they're associated to paganism in one sense, because of when they're visible, they're associated to this decomposition. But when they're, when they're doing other than decomposition they're invisible so it's been hard for a long time to really put them into a into the mix you know consciously and it's only very recently that we've been able to put fungi you know in the correct places of conservation when it comes to ecosystems there is no ecosystem without without fungi so if we look at a forest or any ecosystem as a cake what happens is that you have the ingredients, right? You'll have you know, sugar, flour, butter, but if you don't put egg in it, nothing sticks together. Um, and right. really, fungi like the egg in the recipe, they are the organisms that make the other ingredients stick together to form something. So, because they, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's a moment to appreciate them in this transit that we're having to appreciate every living being as part of a larger one and the only way we can really appreciate that larger one is through the fungi all right
0: guys well i hope you enjoyed this roundup and next week we will be coming at you with a brand new episode and guest interview on in search of flavor stay tuned if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend family member coworker or whoever could use some wonderlust in their life right now Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. They're tremendously helpful and we greatly appreciate it. For more inspiration and information on how to come travel with us in South America or bring South America into your home, visit our website at www.lizkanski.com and follow us on Instagram at LCCWE. See you guys next week. Hasta la proxima.